Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to a special abbreviated episode of Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. This is going to be a short episode today. We are only doing a Law 140, and that's it. And that is because I am stuck preparing for a felony trial with my real-world job for one of my clients, and I just haven't had the chance to put together an outline of all of the crazy shit that has happened in the past week, and there's a lot of it. I think we're at 40 stories already, and frankly, it's easier for me to put together a Law 140 with stuff that I know than it is to plow through 40-something stories, get you the details, and piece all that together. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the uh, Jose Serrata verdict out in California, the murder of... Kate Steinle and the law on lesser included offenses, because that's something folks have talked about quite a bit. But before we get into that, make sure that you join the conversation online if you haven't already. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall, that is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it, I would love you eternally if you left us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or gave us a written review, either of those. Uh, we're now pushing for a 200 review mark. We're in the uh, the low 100, so we're trying to get to 200, and your ratings help us get there. All right, so to give you a little bit of factual background about this case, you've probably heard of it because it's been such a high-profile situation. Back about two years ago, uh, a lady by the name of Kate Steinle was walking with her father along Pier 14 in uh, San Francisco when she was hit in the back by a 40 caliber bullet. The shot was fired by Jose Inez Garcia Zarate, uh, who's a homeless guy. He had been in the country. He'd been deported five times and kept coming back. Uh, he had been a convicted felon for several drug possession cases, as well as manufacturing drugs also. So the guy was both a user and a dealer, uh, but did not have anything in his record indicating that he was violent. He was just a, a dope slinger, essentially. Well, the bullet that hit Steinle ricocheted off of the concrete about 80 feet away before it actually hit her. And the gun that it was fired from was a Sig Sauer that had been stolen from a federal park ranger the week or so before. And the particular mechanics of this gun, it has a very light trigger pull, it didn't have a safety, so on and so forth. Those facts will matter later on. We're going to get there. Uh, but the reason why the case became such a big deal is that a certain presidential candidate who would later become our Papaya POTUS, the beloved Donald Trump, uh, actually found out about it and talked about it at length at his campaign appearances throughout the summer of 2016. Uh, here's a clip of one of those comments. I am so proud of the fact that I got dialogue started on illegal immigration. But, and people in the media, in all fairness, they were very rough on me that first week, and then many of them have now apologized to me, and almost everybody's apologized, because it turned out I was right. Beautiful Kate in San Francisco was shot by an illegal who was here five times and they couldn't do anything about it. And believe me, Mexico kept pushing them back because they didn't want them. Believe me, that's true. 
And now everybody is saying that Trump was right. But I tell you, I took a lot of abuse. I had disloyal people like Macy's and like others. Oh, Donald, you're a little controversial. We're going to have to drop you. We're going to have. I said, I don't care. The ties, what do they mean to me? He's wearing one of my ties, by the way. It's very nice. It's good. I never liked them that much because they were made in China, so it never mattered that much. But. Now, of course, leave it to the president to take a woman's death and make it about him and his ties and how they were made in China, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, anyhow, this past week, the jury returned a verdict in the case, and they found Zarate not guilty of murder, not guilty of manslaughter, and not guilty of assault with a firearm. They only convicted him of possession of a firearm by a felon. So the question, of course, became, how did that happen? The president has sent several tweets about it, talking about how disgraceful it is. Uh, our Attorney General Beauregard, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, has talked about this is proof that sanctuary cities kill people. And there's not been a whole lot of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Not a whole lot of nuance or understanding or trying to figure out what actually happened. It's more so folks trying to make a buck with sound bites and that sort of thing. So what we're going to do is give you a little bit of background and case law on how these lesser included offenses work. And then I'm also going to refer you to a great column by Sarah Rumpf later on that will give you uh, some additional insights. But first, before we get into the law, I have to draw a distinction briefly between common law jurisdictions and what are called model penal code or MPC jurisdictions. So remember from our earlier law 140s that we inherited a common law system of government from the British. And what that means is in addition to the statutes that are written by legislatures, pieces of those statutes, what they mean, if they're not explicitly defined by the legislature itself, they get defined by judges. It, common law is judge-made law. So, for example, uh, back in colonial times, the colonial legislature would have a prohibition against murder, but no one would know what murder technically meant. So the elements for murder were defined by the judges based on prior court decisions that the courts in England had developed. So keep that in mind, because when we get into some of the precedent, you will hear the phrase, at common law, and these are the courts referring to how we used to work prior to the invention of having statutes define every single possible thing they can. Uh, so essentially, a lesser included offense is a crime that is composed of some, but not all, of the elements of a more serious crime. So that essentially, in order to commit the more serious a crime, by definition, you've got to commit the lesser crime as well. Uh, if you're one of our British listeners, I think they call these alternative verdicts over there. That's what one of my, uh, my friends on Twitter told me. Uh, so to give you some examples, I'm going to give you some common law crimes that we have here. So burglary is one. Burglary was defined as the unlawful breaking and entering of a dwelling place of another in the nighttime with the intent to commit a felony therein. So each of those elements had a definition. For it to be unlawful meant that you didn't have a justification or excuse to do it. Breaking meant you used some kind of force to create or enlarge an entryway into the premises. 
entering meant you actually crossed the plane of actually, you know, if you had an imaginary field, think of it like football, where you cross the plane to get a touchdown, same deal. If you somehow crossed the threshold of the home, that counted as entering. Uh, it had to be a dwelling place, so it actually had to be a home of someone else as opposed to a business. It had to happen at night, and you had to have this requisite intent to commit a felony. So just going into a home to camp out and stay there was not a burglary. You had to come in with the intent to rob you or attack you or something that was felonious. Well, as part of that, the lesser included offense is the crime of breaking and entering. Sometimes in a lot of jurisdictions now, it's breaking or entering if you do either one. But that was a lesser included offense of the burglary. So if for some reason you didn't have felonious intent uh, or it wasn't at night, you could still be convicted of the crime of breaking and entering. Uh, how we deal with armed robbery is another example. So if you look at larceny, larceny at common law was defined as the trespassory taking and carrying away the personal property of the owner with the intent to deprive that owner of it. So I come up and I just take your stuff and I'm planning to keep it myself permanently. Well, a robbery was a larceny with force from the presence of that person. And then armed robbery was a robbery with a deadly weapon. So each of those crimes was a lesser-included offense of the more serious crime. So larceny is a lesser-included offense of robbery. Both larceny and robbery are lesser-included offenses of armed robbery. Uh, where you often see a lot of talk about lesser-included offenses because the cases tend to be more high-profile is in the situation with homicides. So at common law, involuntary manslaughter was defined as the unlawful killing of another. That was it. You've killed a person and you did it unlawfully. Didn't care about any of the other details. Well, there was an additional, more serious offense called murder, where it was the unlawful killing of another with malice aforethought, which is this kind of ill will that you had towards the person who was killed. And then as we advanced as a society, we added in murder in the first, or first-degree murder, which was the unlawful killing of another with malice aforethought and with premeditation and deliberation. So it means you pondered the wrongness of your actions and chose to do it anyway, and there was some kind of premeditative you know, planning a bit as you, uh, as you did it. So again, same type of deal. You have first-degree murder would be the top count of an indictment. Uh, Second-degree murder, this unlawful killing of another with malice aforethought, would be a lesser-included offense. And then involuntary manslaughter would be a lesser-included offense of both of those. Hopefully that all makes sense. So to give you an idea of how this was supposed to work out, the, um, there's a case, Fuller versus United States, where the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals kind of explained procedurally how it is supposed to work. And what they've said is, quote, when a greater and lesser offense are charged to the jury. The proper course is to tell the jury to consider first the greater offense and to move on to consideration of the lesser offense only if they have some reasonable doubt as to guilt of the greater offense. A jury that finds guilt as to the greater offense does not enter a verdict concerning guilt of the lesser offense. 
The reason for this absence of consideration is not any inconsistency between the offenses. It rather reflects the very inclusion that defines the lesser offense as one included in the greater. A lesser included offense is one which is necessarily established by proof of the greater offense and which is properly submitted to the jury should the prosecution's proof fail to establish guilt of the greater offense charged without necessity of multiple indictments. Now, the court in Fuller v. U.S. was dealing with how the federal criminal justice system works. Uh, Under the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, Rule 31C, a jury is allowed to consider a lesser-included offense without the prosecution even having to ask for it. Uh, The rule says, quote, a defendant may be found guilty of any of the following. Subpart 1, an offense necessarily included in the offense charged. 2, an attempt to commit the offense charged or three, an attempt to commit an offense necessarily included in the offense charged if the attempt is an offense in its own right. So essentially, you get charged with a crime, and the jury can consider all of the lesser-included offenses automatically. That is one common way of dealing with it. You also have certain state jurisdictions that are considered what are called single-shot or all-or-nothing jurisdictions, where essentially the DA has to pick a charge, And they have to prove that charge, and if they don't prove that charge, the defendant goes home. The jury doesn't get to consider lesser-included offenses. And then you have jurisdictions that are what seems to be California, where you're expressly charged with each of the lesser-included offenses, and then it's up to the prosecution to determine how that's going to be argued to the jury. And we'll get into why that matters later on as well. So as you would expect, stuff like this has already been considered by the United States Supreme Court and how it all works out. One of the uh, important cases on it is Keeble versus the United States. This was from 1973, and this involved an assault by a Native American. And under a federal statute called the Major Crimes Act, certain serious offenses that happened on an Indian reservation were tried in federal courts. And then anything that was not part of the major crimes were left to the tribal courts on the reservation itself. And in this particular case, Keeble, the defendant, uh, got into a fight with a family member, beat him up pretty badly. The family member ended up dying. And as part of the autopsy, it turned out that the family member died from exposure to the cold when he was trying to walk home, but the assault contributed to the death. So he was charged under the Major Crimes Act with assault intending to inflict serious bodily injury, and his defense was that he didn't intend to inflict serious bodily injury, they just got into a fight, and I'm sure some of you have had fights with your family members, and certainly didn't plan to kill him. Well, the issue that ended up coming before the Supreme Court was whether or not it was appropriate to have a lesser-included offense uh, considered by the jury, whether or not that was allowed. And the defense argued that, yes, it should have been because, of course, he's arguing he didn't have this intent to commit the serious bodily injury. The government argued that that wasn't proper because the lesser included offense would have been for a crime that normally was left to the tribal courts. And then it was up to the Supreme Court to try and hash that out. And as part of their decision, ultimately, they said that the defendant was entitled to this jury instruction on lesser included offenses. But the court also went into some of the history of lesser-included offenses and how they came about, why they matter. 
The opinion says, quote, Although the lesser included offense doctrine developed at common law to assist the prosecution in cases where the evidence failed to establish some element of the offense originally charged, it is now beyond dispute that the defendant is entitled to an instruction on a lesser included offense if the evidence would permit a jury rationally to find him guilty of the lesser offense and acquit him of the greater. The court then went into some of the details about the case and the constitutional issues involving the Major Crimes Act, and they said, quote, It is no answer to petitioner's demand for a jury instruction on a lesser offense to argue that a defendant may be better off without such an instruction. True, if the prosecution has not established beyond a reasonable doubt every element of the offense charged, and if no lesser offense instruction is offered— the jury must, at least as a theoretical matter, return a verdict of acquittal. But a defendant is entitled to a lesser offense instruction, in this context or any other, precisely because he should not be exposed to the substantial risk that the jury's practice will diverge from theory. Where one of the elements of the offense charged remains in doubt, but the defendant is plainly guilty of some offense, the jury is likely to resolve its doubts in favor of conviction. In the case before us, for example, an intent to commit serious bodily injury is a necessary element of the crime with which Petitioner was charged, but not of the crime of simple assault. Since the nature of Petitioner's intent was very much in dispute at trial, the jury could rationally have convicted him of simple assault if that option had been presented. But the jury was presented with only two options, convicting the defendant of assault with intent to commit great bodily injury or quitting him outright. We cannot say the availability of a third option, convicting the defendant of simple assault, could not have resulted in a different verdict. Indeed, while we have never explicitly held that the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment guarantees the right of a defendant to have the jury instructed on a lesser-included offense, it is nevertheless clear that a construction of the Major Crimes Act to preclude such an instruction would raise difficult constitutional questions. So the court went on to rule in a 6-3 verdict that the defendant was entitled to a lesser-included offense jury instruction, even though under the Major Crimes Act, the crime of simple assault typically would have been reserved for for the tribal reservation courts. So the Supreme Court also weighed in on lesser included offenses in the homicide context uh, in Beck versus Alabama. And this is was a seven to two decision that relied on the Keeble precedent, uh, where essentially in the case, Beck was participating in a robbery and his accomplice had intentionally killed somebody. So Beck was tried for first degree murder, capital murder, where he could theoretically be put to death. And under the Code of Alabama, it was considered one of these all-or-nothing jurisdictions at the time, where you um, either had to prove the criminal intent for first-degree murder, or the defendant was acquitted, and that was a wrap. That was part of being charged with capital murder. And in this particular case, the intent was not derived by Beck intending to kill somebody, but instead it was derived from what's called the felony murder doctrine that we'll talk about some later time. Uh, High-level overview is that if you're engaged in a felony and it's a certain type of felony and someone dies, you can be charged for murder as a result even if you didn't intend to kill them. Well, typically, felony murder would be a lesser-included offense of first-degree murder in this particular fact scenario, but Alabama statutes expressly banned the judge from giving an instruction on felony murder in that case. The statute prohibited lesser-included offenses. And the Supreme Court, when they considered this, essentially said that that was improper because you take the same analysis 
as they did in Keeble. And the court actually just copy-pasted a big chunk of the Keeble decision and put it straight in the Beck versus Alabama decision. What they said was that when you're dealing with a crime of homicide, the guy's obviously guilty of some really serious offense. But if he's not given the lesser-included offense instruction where the jury can consider felony murder, they're more likely to find him guilty of capital murder and put him to death than they are to acquit him and send him home because it's obvious he was a bad dude. Uh, So what the Supreme Court has held, and it's still valid to this day, is that all capital cases, the jurisdiction, regardless of what their state-level statutes say, is required to offer jury instructions on lesser-included offenses to first-degree murder. So if you've got the death penalty on the table, the jury's entitled by law to consider lesser homicide offenses. So dealing with lesser-included offenses, how that all works out, creates practical complications for how attorneys argue the case. So I've talked before about Ken White. He is at Pope Hat on Twitter. Uh, He put a thread together on this very issue, and it, it covers a lot of very serious points. Because if you're a district attorney, you don't necessarily want to argue the lesser included offenses at all. You really want to push hard for the top count of the indictment, the serious offense that you've charged, because otherwise you run a very real risk that the jury will convict on a lesser included offense just because it's easier, because you've got fewer elements that they have to find have been satisfied. So typically jurors will take their job seriously, but every now and then you get a jury that just wants to go home and convicting of a lesser included offense makes that go faster. You have a similar complication if you're a defense attorney. If you think there's a very serious chance that your client should be found not guilty, you don't necessarily want to argue, go ahead and find him guilty of this lesser included offense because you think there's a chance that he can go home. Now, a lot of times a attorney will deliberately argue in favor of a lesser included offense when it's obvious that their client is screwed. Like if your client gets caught with the gun in his hand and he's got the fingerprints on it, whatever else then it probably makes sense to say, hey, convict us of involuntary manslaughter instead. Uh, And that essentially is what happened in the Steinle case. The defense argument, in a nutshell, was that a group of folks arrived at the beach where Steinle died before Zarate did. They think that group left the gun that was there. Zarate found it. The discharge was an accident. That's the gist of everything that they were talking about. And this type of inconsistency of you know the undisputed facts, how the defense argued those facts, and then kind of the political narrative that had been woven about the case gets reviewed at length by Sarah Rumpf, who I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the podcast. She wrote a column for Red State that's entitled, Have We Been Lied To About the Kate Steinle Case? And she goes through the evidence and contrasts what was actually brought before the jury and how it was prosecuted. So essentially what the prosecutors argued was that Zarate brought the gun to the beach, planning to hurt somebody, deliberately fired it, and it just happened that Steinle was the one that died. But when you looked at the facts, you didn't get that. So here's an extended quote from Sarah's column. She says, quote, So we have a defendant with zero connection to Steinle. He had a history of drug crimes, but no known violent crimes. The bullet that killed Steinle hit the ground and then ricocheted upwards. There was a video possibly showing another group of people disposing of the gun where Garcia Zarate said he found it. 
Reviewing the Sig Sauer website shows these handguns cost $1,000 or more. You can see how defense counsel could easily argue that a homeless illegal immigrant would be unfamiliar with one. The prosecutors were under tremendous political pressure. People wanted Kate Steinle's killer's head on a platter even before Donald Trump ever tweeted her name. So it's not that surprising that San Francisco prosecutors told the jury that Garcia Zarate intentionally brought the gun to the pier that day with the intent of doing harm, aimed the gun towards Steinle, and pulled the trigger. As the San Francisco Chronicle reported, adding that the assistant district attorney also spent much of the trial seeking to prove the gun that killed Steinle couldn't have fired without a firm pull of the trigger. Well, when you're arguing hard for this first-degree murder conviction, you open yourself up to the jury not really believing you. So having evidence that this particular Sig Sauer model has a reputation for accidental discharge, the issue of the ricochet tends to belie the argument that the gun was actually pointed at Steinle and so on down the line, what you end up with is a case of overzealous prosecution, prosecutorial misconduct, and the jury did what the jury's supposed to do. They found the guy not guilty of the offenses with which he was charged. Because in California, the way that their laws are set up to convict him of murder, you had to argue that there was intent there. He had to have deliberately tried to do this. Now, there's a pretty good argument to be had that he was guilty of manslaughter. This notion that it was just an unlawful killing of another criminally negligent homicide is how it's explained in California, these model penal code jurisdictions. Um, you know, there's the facts are there for that. You know, people know guns are dangerous. You're there with a gun, so there's a chance it could go off and someone could be injured. You could find a verdict for manslaughter fairly easily. But it doesn't seem like the prosecution attempted to argue that because they were deliberately trying to argue that he was guilty of murder. And this is the result you end up with. So folks, that's the gist of lesser included offenses and how they play out in practice. Hopefully this is something that is informative to you as you're going out reading Donald Trump's tweets and everything else that's going on. Uh, the gist of it is Zarate will still be going away. He's going to get at most three years in prison, most likely, for the possession of a uh, firearm by a felon. And then he's going to get deported. So just because he was found not guilty of the murder doesn't mean that he's not going to get punished for something. But again, this is another example where your prosecutors hold tremendous power and oftentimes where something goes awry in the eyes of the public, where someone is found not guilty of something where they think they should be found guilty of, uh, typically you can lay the blame at the feet of how the prosecution chose to pursue their case. I hope this has been an informative segment. Sometime this week, I will get together a full Fiscamall podcast with the actual news from the past week. Uh, but until that happens, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope you have a blessed week. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you sometime in the next few days. Take care. <laughs>